0: Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. Well, I don't want to break up the conversation, but I'm going to. I'm Brahman Maddox. I'm Director of the Institute for Government. I'm delighted to have here Andy Holdane, Chief Economist of the Bank of England, for a second in conversation about where we are and what things look like. Thank you very much indeed for coming and talking to us. Andy, as you know, Chief Economist, Cluster of Academic Posts, trustee of National Numeracy, a cause I care a lot about, and founder of Pro Bono Economics, which is?
1: A charity that does work to assess the impact of charities' activities.
0: Thank you. And also spends, you may not know, quite a bit of time going round the country talking to businesses and people about what the economy looks like, which just adds um, a refreshing uh, note of reality to the many speeches he puts out. Actually, one of them i got here the Bank of Estonia, um, which, which I'm going to refer to later. Thanks for coming. Um, let's start with where we are now and the outlook uh, as it is. Um, I don't mean just beautiful day, but the, the UK now um, at the, in a rather grungy state at the bottom of the G7 countries as far as growth goes, and we were at the top. Uh, what does it look like now? Um,
1: I think grungy is a bit harsh. Uh, hello, Bronwyn. Growth is more- steady. Mm. It's steady mm. at around trend. I mean, truth be told, I mean, the last 10 years really have been largely spent making up the gap between the economy's supply side potential and demand. So a big gap opened up mm. between those two things, <laughs> the output gap, immediately after the crisis. Uh, and that meant we've been through a period, 10 years, growth may not have felt all that strong, but demand has nonetheless been running ahead of its supply capacity. Therefore, that gap, that output gap has been shrinking. Uh, I, think, I think most people would probably accept that you know, accommodative monetary policy has been part of the reason for that. Uh, we've been very clear that as long as that output gap existed, policy would remain accommodative. We're now at the point, you know, 10 years on, where, as best we can tell, uh, that output gap is close to having been eliminated. That gap between the economy's supply potential and uh, demand in the economy is all but closed. So you look at unemployment, you know, it's at 4%, you know, less than half what it was at its peak after Mm. the crisis. Pretty close, we think, to what would count as its long-run natural rate. Of course, there are uncertainties around that. But nonetheless, as best we can tell from various metrics, the output gap is close to being, if not already, closed. That's relevant, very relevant, to the growth outlook from now. So what that means is that while over the past 10 years we've been able to run the economy slightly hotter than its supply-side potential to close the gap between demand and supply, looking forward from now, that can no longer happen. It's less about boosting demand and more a story about supporting the supply-side of the economy if it is to continue growing. So when you look at our forecast, the Bank of England's forecasts, uh, it's true that by historical standards, they lurk on the gloomy side. Grungy side, was it would you?
0: I, I, I did, but we, may, we can allow, allow ourselves to get more technical. From let, there. Let's go.
1: Let's go um, if by gloomy you mean lower than historically, that is true.
0: I'm thinking also of the IMF's recent, recent comments and projections, but, uh, yeah. and, and, and the revision downwards of their forecasts. Uh,
1: but the, I mean, the reason for that is a supply side reason that our best guess of what the potential growth rate of the UK economy is at the moment is lower than it has been in the past, roughly around 1.5%, which can divvy up into roughly half percent from growth in the labor supply, including overseas labor, and 1% from growth in productivity in the capacity of that labour force to produce outputs in the economy. Both of those are lower than their historical trend. And that's why the numbers we're seeing right now, while they look a little bit gloomy, a little bit lower, are nonetheless pretty much in line with that somewhat diminished supply side capacity of the economy.
0: You've written a lot about productivity, and we've heard a lot about the productivity puzzle, over the, uh, particularly over the past uh, 10 years, though, of course, it goes back uh, beyond that. Where are you in your thinking about the UK in particular?
1: Hmm. Well, the, um, I mentioned that our current projection is predicated on roughly around 1% productivity growth. Um, at one level, that could even be seen to be a touch optimistic, because its average over the past decade... Uh, has been a a roundish number. Um, It's been a a lost decade of productivity for the UK Mm. economy. That doesn't make it unique among advanced economies by any means. All advanced economies and a good number of emerging markets have seen lower than historical rates of productivity growth. Nonetheless, the UK stands out relative to the international competition (laughs) for being right at the bottom. And you're talking
0: its- about the last decade, but actually this is something that has roots before then, isn't
1: it? It does. It, it does. So
0: we're not really just talking about the aftermath of the financial crisis. So some people have pegged some of this to that. We're talking about a longer pattern.
1: No, that's true. I mean, um, the, the, the flatlining is historically very unusual. Hmm. Uh, you're talking probably pre-Industrial Revolution to see flatlining. But truth be told, we have seen in the UK and elsewhere is slowing over a, a longer time horizon possibly from the early 90s onwards in the UK uh, and elsewhere. For a time, pre-crisis, some of that slowdown may have been disguised by what was happening in the financial sector. Um, yeah, roughly speaking, financial sector expanding its balance sheet, which, given the way we measure productivity in the financial sector, shows up actually as higher productivity. Whereas, in fact, after the fact, you know, <coughs> It's questionable whether all of that financial sector balance sheet growth was indeed banks becoming leaner Mm. and fitter and more efficient. Mm. Uh, More likely, it was some combination of uh, excessive risk taking uh, and some degree of uh, profit um, uh, extraction. So some inflation pre-crisis, a slowly trending, secularly trending downwards path in productivity. Uh, with a further leg down coming since the crisis.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, Some of the story is the crisis. Hmm. Some of the story is uh, companies, understandably, feeling insecure and therefore less willing to invest. Uh, That would provide a dragging anchor to productivity and has. Um, But, of course, that can't fully account for what was happening pre-crisis. And, of course, it can't even fully account... The behaviour by some firms. Because, truth be told, if you take uh, a very granular look at what has happened to the UK corporate sector, um, it tells a strikingly divergent picture of the fortunes of different classes of companies.
0: This is something you've written a lot about. This is the, about.
1: it sometimes goes by the name of the kind of long tail problem. Me mm-hmm. and others have spoken a bit about it. It might actually be better described not. So much as a long tail, as a two-tail uh, problem or two-tail story, um, there is in the UK um, a fat upper tail of very high performance, very high productivity frontier <laughs> companies. Um, if you travel around the country, uh, as I do uh, quite a lot, and I know a number of you do as well, you find them in every sector and in every region. Their productivity hasn't flatlined for the past decade. It's been going up at double-digit rates, at least as fast as at any point uh, in history. So for those companies... So what
0: kind of companies are you talking about?
1: Well, I mean, um, there, is no, uh, there is no... Some sectors have done better than mm-hmm. others. It'd be the ones you'd expect. You know, if you're at the high end of pharmaceuticals or the creative industries, you know, it's, it, it shows up. But a distinguishing feature is that this is not a sector-specific story, nor is it a region-specific story. You get their superstars, big and small, in pretty much every region and pretty much every sector. More in some regions and more in some sectors, but they're
0: there They're there right, right the way through.
1: And for them, the fourth industrial revolution is alive and kicking. It is there. And you know immediately when you visit a firm like that, You know, the the CEO bowls you over uh, with their enthusiasm and their stories uh, of what they're investing in next and how they're skilling up their staff. Um, That is there. That upper tail is as large as in any of our competitive countries, as best we can tell. And and that's there in the numbers too. You see it in, you know, um, indices of creativity and innovation, UK at or near... The top, you know, five of the top 25 global universities, including the top two. Uh, you know, new business created every 75 seconds. This is a sign of parts of the UK economy doing very well, uh, benefiting from that next technological wave. Mm. You ask yourself the question and so, how is it then? How is it? we had, at a whole economy level, a flat hmm.
0: You've got and this top lot doing really, really well um, yeah. and grabbing the digital revolution and, 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 yeah, and investing. And, and, so how come? Yeah.
1: And how come, if, yeah. if that top tail is doing better than France or Germany or even the US, hmm. that we still have a one-third productivity gap with them? What's hmm. going on? And the answer lies, of course, in the second tail, in the lower tail, which is not just longer than in our competitor countries, but has lengthened further during the course of the crisis. Actually, the most striking place where we've seen a slowdown in productivity growth, looking across the productivity distribution, is in companies. You might call them the second decile companies. Not that fat up a tail, not the top 5 or 10%, of, super, ...of superstars, of supercharged companies... ...but in the second decile, second and third decile companies. Those that were high-flying birds pre-crisis... ...but have somehow lost their fairy dust since the crisis. have stopped investing, they've stopped innovating. They've caught the same flatlining disease... ...that the lower 60 or 70% of companies have contracted... Therein, I think, you know, at least in an arithmetic sense, lies the roots of what we've seen. Mm.
0: And, but the way you're phrasing it, you're attributing some of that to the crisis. Um, or at least you, you're saying it's happened since, but are you yeah. uh, saying that some of it is, is either because they haven't had money to, uh, to borrow yeah. um, or it has discouraged them in some other way?
1: For them, that is true. The crisis mm. has been a, another thing, yeah. another thing. But the truth is, the fattest part of the tail existed pre-crisis, and for many of the same reasons. Um, another way of thinking about this productivity problem is that you know it, this is not a problem so much of innovation. If it were, we wouldn't have the upper tail. The problem is rather one of the diffusion of that innovation from the upper tail to the lower tail. For some reason the diffusion engine in the UK is functioning much less well than it does in other hmm. countries. We might talk a bit about hmm. why that is.
0: Right. We've had I mean, governments forever it feels like certainly 30 years come in and say oh we've got industrial strategy or, or maybe we don't but this is a, a industrial strategy by uh, another, another term and they come in and they don't last very long these particular strategies. The IFG has a very colourful chart of just how often these turn over. Um, but the, there's been a remarkable um, agreement during all these plans about what needs to be done with investment in skills um, and encouraging other, other kinds of investment. And yet uh, it feels that these, some of these problems are very unyielding. How does it look to you?
1: Um, they're certainly deep-seated, long-lasting and structural, which mm. is the main reason why mm. not more has been done already uh, to tackle them. That They are of long-standing, That many of them are not, not new. Mm. Um, but they have become more acute, notably more acute. Uh, and the very fact that we're using the words "industrial strategy," I do feel that they're not new words. Mm. Uh, but the fact that we're using them and that there's um, almost universal acceptance of the need for them, I think, is a step mm. forward and a step towards recognising that we probably cannot live with these structural fault lines for another mm. for another generation. I mean, in some ways, the crisis. May have been something of a wake up call on the scale of those structural fault lines and the need, therefore, to begin to remedy them. Um, so, in that sense, the time could not have been riper.
0: There's a cluster of... I mean, I, I'm trying to take where your sense of greatest urgency about the many proposed remedies are. There's a cluster around skills and technical education, yeah. uh, and there's a cluster more widely about, about investment and encouraging innovation, and yeah. governments of uh, different stripes get uh, more or less um, sort of uh, crunchy and tangible about that. Where, where, where is it, what are the things that you would most like done now about this? Mm-hmm.
1: So, I was picking a couple, so I think you mentioned the, the two main categories, and one would be uh, in the broad area of skills, which contains you know, many uh, raw ingredients. The second would be in the area of I'd call it infrastructure, actually, um, but I want to broaden the definition of what I mean by infrastructure. So, on skills, if I was, if I was picking a winner, which of course you shouldn't do, but if I was picking a winner within the sets of categories where I do one thing. I, I do think uh, I've been um, strongly persuaded that a significant contributor to that long tail problem I've discussed is the long tail uh, of management skills, the longer tail of management I mean, skills.
0: You there's mean there's a small group of people who are really, really good, and then it tails off?
1: Very rapidly, yeah. and that tail is longer. I mean, but the mean is both lower. The average is lower but the tail is materially longer in the UK, as best we can tell, than it is uh, in overseas countries. And I think there's a significant impediment uh, to people knowing what they might do to boost uh, their fortunes productivity-wise. And then, as importantly, as understanding, is doing something about it.
0: Right, but so you're pointing the finger at British managers, then, in the British companies?
1: Well, I think... The, the, the evidence suggests we have a distance to travel uh, to catch up with what would be, you know, even good practice managerially relative to a number of our competitor countries. That's not the only factor, remotely, but I think it's a, um, an important one. I mean, if I look at the, think of the three levels of skills within a company: at board level, at management level, and at worker level. I think at all three of those levels, what you find, if you look at the evidence, as I have, is something of a sort of you know, bifurcated or bimodal picture. So let's take boards. Hmm. The most productive companies, unsurprisingly to anyone in this room, have hyperconnected connected boards.
0: can well, you spell out what you mean by
1: that? Uh, that their board I mean. members yeah. either have existing or pre-existing experience, skills, knowledge built up in a broad range of other companies. So not just in that one company? Not in this one company, not even just in that one sector. Uh, And we know that people moving is an absolutely key conduit for the diffusion of ideas. That is the wellspring of productivity improvement. People moving and taking their skills and experience with them. That exists. In that fat upper tail. In fact, they are hyperconnected. Mm-hmm. They are the in-crowd. Mm-hmm. And ex- exists scarcely at all for that long lower tail. Their boards are disconnected. It tends to be people whose experience is narrow uh, and small. That's true at boards, that's true also at the managerial level, the self-same thing. And much less of a culture in this country of people uh, hopping. So uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a go-getting uh, middle manager working for a top tail uh, German company. OK, I'm really going places. Um, in Germany, it would not be unusual for that person to hop from a BMW or a VW. Mm-hmm to a perhaps slightly misfiring mid-sized German Mittelstand company, right? Mm -hmm. Why? Because that person can really bring something. He can turn that from a mediocre company into a top-tier company. And that would be a fantastic thing for that person to do for their career. There is far less evidence of that type of movement... Within the UK labour market, you tend to stick either to your sector, or certainly stick to your segment, your productivity segment. So, if you are, if you work for a top tier company, you might hop, you might hop uh, from JLR to Goldman Sachs, but you will not go to that slightly misfiring
2: mm. West
1: Midlands manufacturing company, most likely. Mm. Mm. So I think whether it's boards, managers, or workers, this, this separate pools problem, uh, I think, in that, lies mm. some, some of these issues. That would be mm. one on the skills side. Mm. Um, if you wanted one on the, on the infrastructure side, uh, I mean, the, the, as well as the soft option is physical infrastructure, like roads and rail. Yeah. Um, I actually think digital infrastructure, especially these days, uh, is something... Uh, that needs every bit as much, if not more, uh, TLC. I don't just mean broadband connection, by the Mm. way. I've been quite taken um, by some of the technologies used by those frontier, top-end firms. Uh, In particular, uh, their ability to create digitally a replica of themselves, a twin of themselves, a digital Mm. twin. Uh, Why do they do that? Well, they do that as a mechanism for eking out productivity improvements. Instead of calling in a BCG or a Bain or a McKinsey's who are expensive Mm. and take time, Mm. uh, they instead just create a replica of themselves and simulate what happens if you change around your business processes. That can be done very quickly Uh, very simply, and very cheaply. I've seen it being done, and it's all of those three things. Mm. The technology for that currently resides, as you might expect, almost exclusively in the companies that are already doing well. But there is not a good reason why that self-save technology could not be applied right across, right down, (coughs) and across the long tail to other businesses. Actually, it's easier to apply to them because they're often mm. pretty simple businesses. Um, so I think there's a question mm. in my mind about you: Could you create a digital infrastructure, not just for the high-flying birds, but for all the low-flying firms as well, that could make best use of that frontier technology at very low cost to them? So, as an idea. But,
0: yeah. or, or people moving around might simply take that idea with them. As you, just coming back to exactly. your earlier point, we had John McDonnell earlier in the week calling for uh, companies over a certain size, 250 people, to have workers um, at the third of uh, their board places going to workers, um, or at least a couple of people from on, on, on the workforce on their, on their boards. What, um, do you think it will solve any of these problems?
1: Without um, going to the details of um, the specific plan, um, <laughs> which are still being worked up anyway. Um, What do we know? Well, we we know that um, uh, plural and diverse boards tend to perform better than non-plural, non-diverse boards. Um, That has been established, I think, um, um, pretty clearly, uh, empirically. Um, We also know that... And workers
0: count as a diversity in this?
2: this.
1: They bring a diversity of experience and background. Mm -hmm. So, uh, of course, they would. Uh, we know a bit about how um, uh, firms that are employee-owned perform relative to those that do not. Uh, The evidence there is by no means uh, conclusive, but tends to suggest that they can perform well uh, in a number of environments. The aspect of this that I've thought about a bit in in, in a previous life was uh, do we think that the current balance of interests within a firm... Uh, Are appropriately weighed in our model of a modern day PLC. So, the primacy given to shareholders Mm. uh, by the UK Company Act, uh, do we think that's uh, appropriate? And uh, yeah, I've repeatedly asked questions about whether it is and whether a more plural sort of purpose for a company might not make some sense. For example, to try and encourage more funds, profits, to be retained within the business Mm -hmm. and reinvested rather than distributed to shareholders if they are first in the queue. Mm. I think there's a a set of open questions around corporate governance and Mm. recognising the plurality of stakeholders, shareholders of course, but also customers, clients, Mm. creditors, Mm. workers, and wider society that I think bears some careful reflection when it comes to these debates.
0: He also took a run, which sounds like a niche subject, although uh, it's one the IFG <coughs> put out a, a comment on by Martin Wheatley, this, this book. He took a run at the Treasury Green Book, which is a set of rules am I gonna, for, for when uh, it's good, uh, uh, when there's a good case for public investment, kind of cost-benefit analysis. Um, do you think he was right to do that? I mean, if you were... Um, if, if you were cynical, which I'm not suggesting for a moment, I am, you would say, Ah, he look, he wanted to be free of the shackles of these constraints in order to uh, direct under Labor public investment towards the regions and industries that he thought should be invested in. Oh. Without these rules, um, is it is it time to look again at, at the Green Book and those kind of uh, rules? Uh, yeah. w- would you welcome um, a more ideological driven, if you like, uh, uh, approach to investment?
1: So um, I won't break the truce that um, you know the, the Treasury doesn't come on monetary policy and we don't come on fiscal policy. So I'm not going to um, uh, take a swing at the green book. I'm not familiar enough with what's in there, frankly, to, to do so. Um, to do so anyway. But you know, do I think uh, that at least part of the solution to the sets of problems we've been discussing mm. uh, lies in improved Infrastructure broadly defined mm. of which some would be public I think there's widespread acceptance of that if mm. you look mm. at the uh, the green and white papers on industrial strategy it makes that absolutely mm. it makes that absolutely clear of course if you are to embark on um, uh, a significant set of projects to improve our public infrastructure that that needs some cost benefit calculus attached to it of course it mm. of course it does uh, I, I would expect that to Mm. to happen. But I mean, I think the case for it is pretty well made by, the, is actually extremely well made by the government's own documents on this. Mm. Right. Mm.
0: All right, let's, let's leave that one there and come to the, the bank itself and monetary policy. We're 10 mm. years on from the financial crisis and it's, um, everyone here knows that we're in a very lively debate about whether this exceptional, uh, this period of exceptional stimul- sti- stimulus can be ended without causing uh, Significant arm. What would you like us to think on this?
1: Um, well, the first thing to say is um, we've already begun mm. along mm. the path mm. towards mm. uh, normalising uh, monetary policy from its um, extraordinarily, by any historical metric, mm. uh, accommodative levels of the last uh, decade and counting. Um, so we've already raised interest rates twice. Um, pretty gradual um, as we said it would be Mm. Um, as best we can tell uh, that has occurred reasonably seamlessly there's Mm -hmm. been no obvious dent to demand as a result of that tightening it was was expected and understood not just by financial markets who are paid to pay attention but by businesses and households as well Uh, actually for many households of course they have felt no effect of mm. those two rate rises at all so far. If you're a mortgage holder who fixed your mm. mortgage three years ago or five years ago and you're refixing today, it's almost certainly at a lower rate than you last fixed at. Mm. Um, so thus far, you know, um, the impact on the economy, I think, has been modest. The rate rises have been well mm. signposted. Mm. Uh, The path from here will, of course, depend on the path for the economy. As we've always said, and it's true, uh, if the economy continues to grow roughly around the rates it's growing right now, in other words, just a touch in excess of its supply-side capacity, that would lead us from having an output gap (coughs) to not having one, a situation of excess demand, cost pressures picking up, as they are domestically, wage-wise, and would then be the prompt for, as we've said all along, uh, a further uh, modest reduction mm-hmm. in the degree of accommodation. Mm. That's key. You know, this isn't mm. tightening, if you like. It is, in the literal sense, tightening. But I think more accurately, this is reducing the extraordinary degree of accommodation mm. uh, in a very limited and gradual mm. way. As is required, given the the gradual nature of the uh, growth picture.
0: In the past 10 years, in quantitative easing, it had a lot of effect. Uh, some of that, perhaps unforeseen, on the distribution of, uh, of of wealth in the in the country, and has helped, as we all know, people with with assets. We had Paul Tucker here, formerly of the Bank, now of Harvard, uh, talking about his his new book uh, recently, um, and saying that uh, unelected uh, institutions or institutions headed by unelected people, uh, such as the bank, but he took in a a great list, um, really have quite a case to answer. And he spent a lot of time on central banks and the Bank of England saying, look, they're in a way responsible for things that change, really, I mean, the cost and quality of of, of people's lives. And he pointed to the past 10 years' effects of uh, of QE. And he said that, Okay, technocrats running these places are con- coming under uh, much more pressure than in the past to justify what they're doing. Does that resonate with you?
1: It does. It does. And, and I think it would have been astonishing uh, if more questions were not being begged uh, of public institutions and indeed of central banks, given what mm-hmm. we've been through, mm-hmm. crisis and all that. But also, you know, um, central banks have been accreting Extra powers and responsibilities for, for several decades now, um, so that questions are being asked about their appropriate role. I think is is entirely understandable, uh, and fair enough. Actually, I think it's entirely fair enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, just on the distribution. So, so what,
0: what, yeah. You know, so what, what's the response? I mean, people are saying, in essence, look, you help, you contributed to where the housing market is now, and it's yeah. the distribution of wealth. No one elected you. Um, you know, yeah. what should you say in response?
1: Yeah. So maybe three things on that, if I may, uh, Bronwyn. Um, The first is to say, and and I think this point is often a bit lost sight of, so I'm going to make it uh, again, which is that there is not a policy measure on Earth ever invented that's not distributional. Um, How do I know that? Because redistribution is the way that public policy works. It's almost what public policy is. either distributing between people, between you and I, Bronwyn, today, or between you and I today and someone else tomorrow. That's roughly what public policy is. It almost has to be distributional to be working. And monetary policy is no exception to that. Of course, when we change interest rates, it alters the distribution of income between borrowers and savers. And of course, Mm -hmm. when we exercise, um, we do QE. That has a wealth effect. That's because that's how it's meant to work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that's point one. Point two, though, is that there is a lot of mythology. Uh, and a lot of stuff wrong when people talk about the distributional mm-hmm. impact of central bank policies, including mm-hmm. the Bank of England, over the last 10 years. And, um, and that's because we tend to focus on those bits that we can ourselves observe. Uh, and miss those bits that are slightly out of sight or that take time. Case in point, you know, if I'm a uh, if I'm a, um, uh, a a person on a low income with low wealth, um, I'm looking at what QE might have done to boost asset prices, uh, and saying I've missed out on that. Hmm. It's raised share prices, it's raised bond prices, it's raised house prices, perhaps. Um, And I've benefited from that less than other people. Mm. Well, in financial terms, um, that's almost inevitable, by the way. If everything goes up 10%, if I've got a lower amount to begin with, Mm. I will get less of a gain. Mm. That's not about monetary policy. That's just telling the the initial endowment of wealth was very Mm. unequal. We haven't made any worse. that's one effect. Mm. The second, though, is that, of course, that's not all that QE has done, as best we can tell. It's not all that interest rates mm. have done, as best we can tell. As best we can tell, mm. they've also created around a million and a half jobs. Mm. Right?
0: Mm. And I thought you were going to go on to say, uh, and averted something much worse than the recession we.
1: Well, I mean, we, 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 we may have been looking at. I mentioned that the, the peak unemployment was, was north of 8%. Mm. Uh, I think without the accommodation, it would still be there. Mm. Okay, uh, I think as a country we'd be 8%, 10% in income terms less well-off across the piece, across the piece. Mm. Um, and actually the biggest beneficiaries of that jobs boost, because we've had a very jobs-rich recovery, mm. have often been people, uh, one younger people, not those that have retired with a lot of assets, uh, and actually some less well-off people. Mm. So if you look across the distribution of incomes or across the distribution of ages, uh, the many ways in which lower rates and higher QE have affected people's incomes, employment and wealth, you don't get the uneven pattern that some people claim. In Mm. fact, you find with a very small set of exceptions, perhaps 5% of the population, that everyone has benefited to some significant degree and by roughly similar
2: Hmm.
1: amounts. The third point, though, um, where I would um, agree with what you're saying, Bronwyn, which is that nonetheless, even if that were true, do we as central banks need to do a much better job, uh, one, of improving understanding of our actions Hmm. and of the economy? And two, which follows from the first, really, building trust in those actions. I mean, the very fact that popular mythology about QE Mm. is different than what I would perceive to be the fact of the matter suggests Mm. we have an understanding problem. And we know from various surveys that we also have something of a trust problem, or at least levels of trust in public institutions, including central banks, are not at the levels that they were pre-crisis. I've spoken in terms of you know sometimes a, a twin deficit problem mm. of both trust and understanding.
0: Mm. And in this speech, I wasn't I wasn't trying to be eccentric. In referring to the speech you gave in the Bank of Estonia, um, those of you who come often to IFG uh, meetings or read our reports know that Estonia is uh, often emerges as the model of uh, all kinds of modern government. But anyway, very Start interesting people. speech you you gave about. Um, Communication and trust, but you, you said it, you know in the, in the middle of it. Actually, many people those six percent—maybe uh, understand what a central bank is, and many uh, many don't. So, you're starting from quite a low point, if you're oh, it's a very trying low
1: to preso- yes, yeah. and and explain what we're doing.
0: Yeah.
1: what we're doing and what impact it's having, and that's mm. not straightforward. Mm. And and uh, we haven't always put our best foot forward on that. Mm. You know, the, the view from thirty thousand feet can be very nice, uh, but. If this does not resonate with people's everyday lives, it, it would be lost. And one thing we can do, which I actually mentioned in the Estonia speech that you kindly mentioned, is we can personalise the impact of monetary policy. Earlier this year, I did just that. You know, I, If I, I could take the characteristics of every person in this room and send you a personalised scorecard of how the loosening in monetary policy over the last 10 years has affected Your income, your wealth, your employment, and your happiness, actually. I could tell you how much happier the Bank of England's made you. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: That would be irresistible. I will send you something, um, (laughs) probably, this evening. Uh, And the reason I think that's the same, similar sort of principle to that which um, uh, was brought for for tax returns a few years Mm -hmm. ago. In other words, tell people where their money is going. On what things? You know, where's my tax money going? What am I funding with my hard-owned uh, salary? And that has been shown, I think, to improve both understanding of, the, in this case, tax policy, fiscal policy, uh, and has also, I think, improved people's willingness, acceptability, trust in, in uh, this case, tax policy. What's true of tax policy applies with no less force, with equal force, I think, to, to monetary policy, um, so of course, you know, some of what we put out needs to be in a form that people can understand and is relatable to their to their lives. Second case in point, you know, we, we just um, end of last year, um, we spent 25 years publishing quarterly a sort of tome. The likes of Phil's has to, has to read it. I know every quarter the inflation report. It's 60 pages. It's dense. Phil, we give Phil about 10 minutes to read it. Uh, it's chartastic. Um, it's read by a very small crowd, you know, many of whom are actually in this room. Um, and it therefore misses almost everyone. Uh, we decided last year to try and turn this into a one sentence or one page and one chart version. Uh, and then assess what impact that's had on trust and understanding. And the answer is, it's been a dramatic impact, a dramatic impact. And that's just really the start of, I think, Mm. what we need to do Mm. to speak to people in language they understand, in terms that link to their lives, to help us be better understood as a central bank. And Mm. what applies to us applies to every other part of government, I think, as well.
0: I understand a reluctance to talk about brexit, but in the interest of communication, what would you like people to understand about what the bank might do in the event let's take it of a no deal brexit
1: yeah I, I, i'm going to seek seek refuge in um, it depends um, but it does depend I mean uh, um, uh, Mark Carney I mean we We've spoken about and have um, looked at a range of scenarios. Our FBC in particular, has looked at a range of uh, scenarios. Um, when it comes to what this might mean for monetary policy, uh, we have said the same, uh, as we said before the referendum, actually. You know, when it comes to the appropriate policy response, say, to, if it were to come to pass, uh, a disorderly no-deal Brexit, What might happen? We have said the same thing as we said pre-referendum. that It depends. It will depend. Of course it will depend on what happens. What happens in financial markets to the exchange rate? What happens in the wider economy to aggregate demand? Uh, And finally, the third ingredient which in this scenario is particularly relevant is what (coughs) happens to the supply capacity of the economy. Because unlike the referendum, if this is Brexit for real rather than just the possibility of Brexit, it would have real effects on our supply-side capacity if it were mm. disorderly. And I say that um, because you know, that is relevant, will be very relevant if it were to come to pass to the decision on interest rates, mm. you know, whether they were to be raised because, I don't know, a form of the exchange rate uh, and a chewing up of the supply side capacity had inflated inflationary pressures, or whether they were to be lowered because aggregate demand mm. had fallen mm. uh, very sharply. Mm. It is genuinely two sided which way we might mm. act, mm. and how we will act will depend upon that balance of demand, supply, and the exchange rate, just as it did mm. pre referendum.
0: Thank you. On that note, let's have some questions. All
2: right, first one is here, on
3: the aisle. Thank you very much. Uh, Paul Swinney from Centre for Cities, uh, very interested in the the long tail work. Um, I want to challenge a little bit on the idea that it doesn't really vary across region and across sector. So what we do know is that the Great Southeast is not only the most productive part of the UK, but is actually one of the most productive parts of Europe. So our productivity challenge is actually elsewhere in the economy. And then we sort of think, well, why is that? And so let's not even think about sector, but let's think even within one firm, and let's think of Barclays. Now, um, let's say Barclays does a a new innovation. We might not want that in the financial sector after the the last 10 years or so, but let's say it does. Um, And it comes with a new innovation, it's investment banking activities. Well, it's investment banking activities are in London, and that's where that innovation plays out, and it might well spread through Canary Wharf. But that innovation is not going to go up to Sunderland, where it's, uh, its call centre activities are, because the same firm is doing very, very different activities. And so I just want to challenge a little bit this idea that it's sort of, you know, it's spread across the country and this idea that actually diffusion is the problem because actually even within a firm, we might not see this diffusion sort of passing out and the ge- geography decisions that, that one firm takes and has implications in terms of that diffusion. So your thoughts on that, please. you will
0: say your experience is it's, it's more concentrated than Andy yes. is, is saying. Andy?
3: Yeah. Do you want to do them one by one? We no, one by yeah.
0: one yeah. at, at yeah. this point. Sure. And then And then I'll cluster them if there are still loads of hands up.
1: Uh, thanks, Paul. And, and I'm interested, as you know, a consumer of your work on, um, on this set of issues spatially. And the very fact, to be honest, the very fact we're having some spatial debates. Geographic debate, I think is a real positive, by the way. Um, uh, yeah, that's one dimension in which the, the debate has I think, moved on in the right sort of direction. Um, as your work and lots of the work has shown, um, this is not, though, just a case. Of London doing well uh, and everyone else doing less well. It's there are lots of thriving cities right across the UK as, as you know, um, doing extremely well. I mean that this this sort of um, fat upper tail and long lower tail. I was cutting the cake by company there. I could cut it by city or by town actually and get the self same picture. Um, uh, these agglomeration effects for cities every bit as powerful as they are for for, for companies um, it is not evenly spread you know um, it's true that even the uh, the best performing uh, city in the northeast um judging from your accent you're probably from the northeast um whereabouts by the way from as am that's i, I that
3: well, from.
1: Exactly. Where are you? that's where i'm from as well so there you go uh, my accent's gone yours is stuck um, <laughs>
3: I'll give you some tips off
1: there. Thank you. Uh, football tips would be helpful. Um, the, um, uh, Newcastle, of course, is doing less well than London, uh, but it's doing massively better than, than Sunderland, or indeed Middlesbrough. Um, um, what I mean, the, the key point here is that um, uh, those the, the the benefits of those thriving cities, which exist in almost every every region. Uh, could, I think, quite effectively be uh, spread out. Those agglomeration effects could be quite effectively spread out. There's no good reason... um, There are a set of bad reasons. There's no good reason uh, why the sorts of things that Newcastle have done, which have taken them through the gears over the last 10 and 20 years, could not be done uh, in a city that is more more than, what, 10 miles away uh, from it. So I, I would not want... Uh, the conclusion, as I sometimes see written about your work, actually, that we we should therefore focus our sights on that which works. Uh, Of course, uh, I think we should learn from that which works, Uh, but with a view to spreading some of that fairy dust to those areas where it it might not work quite as well, including through issues of mobility. I mean, it's a massive issue in the northeast, as you know, Um, on Physical mobility I'm talking about rather than social mobility. So, um, an even yes, but let's not take the wrong conclusion from that, which is to focus on the winners. I want us focused on uh, those that... And to be clear, this long tail isn't zombies. It Hmm. It isn't zombies. It's not companies that ought to go to the wall. These companies are doing... They are surviving are not thriving. Mm. They're earning just enough, uh, but not quite making enough of investment to move through the gears. Mm. Um, I mean, as I said, they are not the tail, they are very much the dog. Uh, they are 80 or 90% of employment, uh, mm. and therefore the benefits of lifting their spirits are enormous. You yeah. know, the truth is, the top tail, the thriving cities, do perfectly well by themselves they just get on with it like the best companies it's those that need a little bit of help and where a little bit of help mm. would deliver a huge benefit where i think mm. as a policy matter we should be focusing our sides
0: mm. no thanks that's very clear though if you worked for the ifg i would take apart your metaphor so we have a dog with two tails with high spirits at the moment let's come to the front um
3: Thank you. My name's Chris Lang, author of Thinking the Unthinkable. Two questions, if I may, on AI. Fascinated by what you talk about the dissemination motor and why it's not working, what little bit of help, to use the phrase you just used, could be used for the long tail in terms of the dissemination of AI? I've heard you say before it's very difficult to imagine those companies doing well without help. And secondly, referring to something you said in the Today program a few weeks ago, there are a lot of very good books looking at the dissemination of technologies in the 19th century. It took some time and there was disruption. Now those periods, have evidently there wasn't universal suffrage. Mm-hmm. How do we do that process of change without the potential massive political and social impacts?
0: Very interesting.
3: Thank you.
1: Uh, there are two, um, two great questions. So, On, um, on that um, diffusion, whether it's AI or indeed anything, anything else, actually, and in some cases, for the companies I'm talking about, um, AI would feel like jumping to the moon. Actually, I just want them to get kind of off the Earth a little bit. Um, so, need not take that. But in terms of what, what might be required, I mean, I, I've, um, um, I think we we made a great step forward in this country a few years ago when we set up um, our catapult centres. Uh, which is sort of the English equivalent of the German Fraunhofer, which have a long historical pedigree of being seedbeds of innovation. And as importantly, seedbeds of diffusion of that innovation. Um, and in some ways, that is what distinguishes, one of the things that distinguishes, apart from scale, the, the English, the British um, catapults and the German Fraunhofer. There are many more of them in Germany, they have a much bigger budget, about 10 times the size. They help about 10 times as many country, uh, companies. And they reached out. They're as much about um, spreading best, or in some cases, good practice, to businesses large and small as they are about cutting-edge AI, algorithms, big data. And that institutional infrastructure is underdeveloped in the UK. We don't really have the equivalent diffusion infrastructure. We have a, an innovation infrastructure, but not really a diffusion infrastructure. So that would be one place, I think, where we could start. I very much like also, um, I'm not suggesting all things in Germany are perfect, but their system for um, effectively um, reciprocal mentoring and technical expertise sharing, their Steinberg system, uh, which is a way of kind of recycling expertise to a much larger pool, it's almost like a, kind of a mechanism for merging those two pools of labor that I mentioned earlier on. There's mm-hmm. so some chance of even those companies that might not otherwise come in contact with someone with AI expertise, having access to them uh, fairly quickly, fairly cheaply, and, and, and fairly simply. So I think um, there's a long list of possibilities, but I think those are pre-existing infrastructures Uh, from which we could learn and, I think, build um, uh, outwards. Now, your second question, um, let me just make sure I've got it absolutely straight. So um, uh, it it would be the, the societal challenge of the next great wave of technological change. It could be everybody's wrenching. Uh, but uh, these days, there's, there's almost even greater scope for people to mobilise and protest if they are being um, affected by it. Was that, is exactly. that, is was that a reasonable? Like mm-hmm. Thank mm-hmm. you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Got it. Um, I think that is um, that sounds absolutely mm-hmm. right to me. Absolutely right. Both bits. Both the change, societally, mm-hmm. socially. I think will be every bit as wrenching. Mm. Uh, and two, that the societal consequences uh, could be um, uh, even greater. For me, this, this um, and I've written in touch about this, um, we know that even in the previous industrial revolutions, um, societally did not sit idly by while this was happening. A combination of uh, government and civil society built <laughs> institutions either to speed the passage so that the costs weren't as great, or to cushion the impact. Um, now, that could have been uh, creating a trades union movement. Uh, it could have been creating a whole raft of philanthropic organizations. It could be creating a social security system. It could be creating a national health service. All of these, in a way, were the societal response, the civic or national uh, or civil society response. Uh, to these periods of wrenching. Now this time's institutional response, given what you say, will need to be every bit as great and we need to start even earlier because the transition will be faster. So I think your prognosis is spot on and tells us that the institutional challenge, by which I don't just mean government institutions, but civil society institutions, I think will be even greater. And thinking now, about what those institu- institutions need to be, I think is of the mm. essence. Let's take mm. skills and education. Mm. Mm. You know, If this future world of AI comes to pass, the current curriculum is no way close to being fit for purpose, for equipping the next generation of kids for the future world of work. And of course, the notion that education is something you know, done to us when we're young, where we invest heavily in cognitive skills also will be appended by all of this. You know, education will need to be lifelong and at least as much will probably have to be put, put into non-cognitive skills of various types given that the thinking machines will chew up uh, our capacity to have a comparative advantage over cognitive tasks, So I think... Um, a lot more could be said and <coughs> doubtless will be said, but I think your challenge is absolutely right and absolutely <laughs> enormous.
0: Yeah, it's a massive political challenge, as you said. Um, here on the aisle, how many people want to ask questions? I've got to see. All right, we've got two, three, four, five. OK, let's, let's see what we can get through. Um, yeah, yes, you. Um, Vicky. Uh, it is Vicky. Um, are you OK to go on a bit past quarter? I am, if you are. Yes, I am fine. Um,
4: all right.
0: If
1: anyone needs to leave, just leave. I won't feel offended. Yeah, yeah, fine. Fine.
4: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, Vicky Price. Thank you very much for this. Uh, just uh, a couple of things on, on uh, particularly small firms and whether they can really raise their game or not. I mean, the truth is that there isn't very much finance for SMEs. Uh, yes, there's always a question of is it demand or is it supply, but actually, because of um, capital requirements and the, credit, the, the risk rating that's been given for SMEs, it's very hard, actually, to, to borrow... And invest uh, from the banking system. So, so what firms do, and they're very, very clever about that, is instead of, in my view, um, not knowing how to manage it, they're doing the right thing, which is to hire people who are cheap, uh, easy to uh, fire, and uh, hire and fire, uh, and uh, and of course greatly subsidised by uh, the government through the tax system, the tax credits. Uh, and they're keeping going. They're not zombies, like just like you're saying. So, so I mean, you're saying that the Bank of England does the things it's supposed to be doing, and so on. Uh, but actually, in terms of credit conditions, uh, we may argue that they, in many ways, encourage that type of reaction from firms who are very, very rational, very logical in what they do. They survive, and they've created all this employment that we've seen. What's suffered is investment, obviously, and productivity, as a result. Uh, so, thinking back, I mean, we're not worrying so much about the long tail and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it is a structural issue, if you compare it with Germany, as you've been doing. Uh, we have a much less, uh, lower manufacturing sector. Yeah. And it is no surprise that since the financial crisis, actually, if you look at the G7, and the EU, just the EU, we've been the lowest in terms of productivity, which, in fact, it has been hardly moving at all as a result, because, of course, manufacturing didn't do well, and it's all been services. Yeah. So, so I just wondered, therefore, whether it isn't just a, a, a question of structure uh-huh. uh, rather than management, uh, and and it is that structure that we need to be worrying about in terms of the, the particularly the finance structure around firms right now.
1: Yeah. So to that, and I haven't discussed financing and financial infrastructure, which is not remotely because I don't think it's important. I think it's absolutely important for the for the reasons that you say, um, uh, Vicky. In, in some ways, this is this this really is a a long-standing and deep-seated structural problem. You know, when we. Uh, we were writing reports about the SME financing gap in the 1920s and 1930s uh, and those so-called Macmillan gaps are still with us Um, they're still with us and the crisis may have made them a little bit worse uh, because lending was scarce but nonetheless they are of long standing and structural Um, other countries as you know uh, have um, by design and the by design part of this is crucial uh, sought financial infrastructures that do a somewhat better job uh, of reaching a wider range of corporates of all sizes and sectors. Uh, and again, without coming across as um, uh, too Germanic, I mean, the, the German structure is an interesting case in point. That was very much by design. Uh, the kind of three-tier structure with the kind of Sparkassen acting locally to small businesses, mm. uh, the Landesbanker uh, acting regionally to somewhat larger businesses, And then a sort of national development bank on top of that, uh, KFW, servicing typically uh, the bigger and more innovative uh, projects. Um, We do not really have any of those three layers of the cake, certainly not on the scale uh, that they exist uh, in Germany. We now have a British business bank, which is kind of good news. Uh, but it's not remotely at mm. the scale mm. of a uh, uh, KFW, KFW. Even if its resources increase, I think their plan two will still be well, well short. So, um, so I agree with you. Yeah, alongside physical infrastructure and digital infrastructure, financial infrastructure, I think, also needs uh, a bit of a look. The truth is, the number of new entrants to banking since the crisis has actually gone up dramatically. Uh, in fact, it's gone up infinitely because it was zero. Uh, new entrants for the better part of a century uh, and now we've licensed 20, 30, 40 new firms and that's good news Uh, is that yet of a scale that would make a difference to what we're talking about no Uh, does it need to be I think think my answer to that is, is yes that a key element of this industrial strategy needs to be having an adequate financing arm again those top end firms they're getting it you know, mm-hmm. the UK, relative to any other country in Europe, does fantastically for VC money. That's mm. the good news. Mm.
2: Uh,
1: the bad news is that our VC market is still a fraction of what it is in the US. VC being venture capital. Venture capital, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and what's more, that money gravitates towards the new and the shiny, and mm. uh, not towards the old incumbent, perhaps mm. uh, slightly. Uh, in need of um, a shine, companies that, that, that occupy the mm. that occupy the long tail, and that needs, that needs to fix. It needs to fix.
0: Thanks. Let me let me try and get a cluster of, of, of ones in because um, phenomenon, not unknown. Where more hands keep going up. Um, let's take several here on the aisle, and then we're going to come to the back.
5: Uh, Larry Elliott of the Guardian. Um, I just wondered whether the fourth industrial revolution might make the current productivity problems seem less important look, if we look back in 10 or 15 years' time. And, and, I mean, unless, you're, unless you're like Robert Gordon, who thinks that the fourth industrial revolution is not going to be a patch on the big wave of technological advance at the end of the 19th century, surely things like digital robots, biotechnology, genomics, could have just as big an impact on productivity growth in the future um, yeah. as those did in the past. And it, may, it may just be a that we're at the end of one particular technological phase. And in the past, that's tended to lead to low levels of productivity. So I just wonder whether you might wanna.
0: Mm. Yeah. That's great, you put Sorry. it really well, thanks. Um, let's go back and then over. So can we Can we take, yes, thanks.
5: Christopher Howard Project for Modern Democracy. Does the is the change in the composition of the UK economy since the 1980s from manufacturing to services, is that part of the explanation for our uh, ongoing s- slowdown in productivity growth? And is that something which we sh- which will potentially condemn us to slower productivity growth in the future? Yeah. Yeah,
2: thank
0: you. Nice and crisp here on the aisle.
5: Thank you, Alex Matchett, Glint. Um, Andy, you mentioned... I, I'm so sorry, I didn't catch that. Uh, Glint. Um, Andy, you mentioned... Um, the impact of quantitative easing on perceptions of different disenfranchisement and inequality, not just in this country but around the world, um, parallels that have also been joined to the rise in populist politics around the world, is QE responsible for that?
0: Great. My question's getting good and succinct. The
5: point. Thanks. Uh, Tony Cousin-Price from Bayes. Um, Andy, I have a question about your focus on the distribution of productivity, which is that as far as I know, you, know, you can think of distribution as a, as a snapshot uh, when in fact we know that it's a standing wave, that things are moving around inside that distribution all the time. And actually, it seems to me that it's very easy to say things that are obviously arithmetically true about a distribution when actually we don't understand the structure that gives rise to that distribution. So maybe, I mean, just you talked about venture capital. All those venture capital firms, backed firms, will have been in the bottom left of your distribution for a very long time until they started making money. I mean, Google was r- taking out value add from the economy until it turned a profit in whenever it was, Amazon too. So do we... Is there a worry, do you think, that by focusing... On these arithmetic properties of distributions, you actually create policy narratives which might be quite misleading, simply because we don't know how firms move around it.
0: Yeah, a terrific question. Okay, we've got four terrific questions. Um, we have the fourth industrial revolution, where it's going to make uh, really solve the productivity problem, and we're looking at um, you know just, just just a moment, as as Andy Allen uh, put it. Um, we have the um, uh, manufacturing to services is that's what, what's going on and we you know, can be condemned to low productivity forever. We have whether QE caused populism and we have uh, the Bayes challenge on uh, whether we're looking at just arithmetic uh, distrib- um, <coughs> qualities of a distribution in fact firms are moving around all between it. Yeah.
1: Great. Why don't try them in reverse order? Um, starting with Tony. So on, on, on your point, I mean uh, of course you're right and, and if, if all we were doing is looking at st- uh, static snapshots of distributions uh, there would be a risk of, of, of reaching uh, wrong headed uh, conclusions um, that's not what we tended to do uh, I mean one point that's worth making is that uh, although there is there definitely is movement within the distribution over time as, as you'd expect there's a, there's a <coughs> heavy degree of inertia uh, within the different deciles or quartiles of that uh, of that distribution, uh, especially those, especially those in that longer lower tail. So it moves, but parts of the distribution move ever so, ever so sluggishly. Um, the second point would be um, we have done some work, uh, and some people probably hit the streets, uh, looking uh, more at the lifespan of firms uh, and how their productivity evolves during their. Uh, during their uh, lifespan. Um, you know, is the, is the lifespan of... Pro- you know what the lifespan of, of, of productivity is for an individual. Mm. You start super low, you peak about 40, and then by the time you're my age, you're well into the downswing, right? <laughs> um, or even, or even that has altered. Mm. Um, the same is not quite true of of, of companies. They, they, certainly start, they certainly start low, but there's more of a sort of plateauing uh, effect mm. with them. So, um, just to, um, I mean, the short answer is we are looking at that. That dimension is definitely important and can certainly yield some important insights about how you translate from distributions to industrial strategy, which I know is one of your key uh, areas. Now, if I answered yes to the question, has QE caused populism? Yes. I mean, there's my headline, right? Um, so, so the answer is no. Uh, um, and actually, uh, that's also what I think. Um, that's also what I think. I mean, it's, it, it's an honest answer from a central banker as well as being a convenient one. Um, I mean, I, I, was, um, genuinely, uh, I was genuinely open-minded about uh, this question of has QE had seriously adverse inequality stroke distribution implications for certain cohorts? Uh, I promise you I went into that with an open mind and with all the data, very, very granular household data,
2: mm.
1: not just on their, on their, on their finances, mm. but on their happiness, their subjective sense of well-being. Mm. Mm. So um, yeah, many months and many exhausted researchers later, uh, I'd convinced at least myself that, uh, that our actions, at, uh, at least, had not been a big contributor. Uh, we're not short of other possible suspects. In fact, lots of work has been done on the other plausible suspects for that, uh, including uh, technology. In fact, one reason why inequality as measured, both wealth and income in the UK, has not worsened uh, uh, on most measures at all over the last uh, couple of decades uh, is partly because uh, it's felt to be because the penetration of, for example, industrial robots in this country is far less than in most other uh, countries so technology is a driver the imf work confirms that that has been a cause of rising inequality but not so much in this country mm. for, for slightly kind of mm. perversely bad reasons um globalization imf works or you know, there are candid explanations for this and of course i throw into the pot um the crisis itself so some very interesting work being done by economists and political scientists working in combination about after every recession, we tend to have a populist lurch right, and after financial crises, that lurch is particularly long and particularly long-lasting. So I think um, even before you get to kind of God-fearing central bankers, there are many more factors of a structural nature you can point towards that explain the rise in, uh, in, in popularity. Populism. Um, is it a compositional effect, I think Chris? Uh, not really. So um, this is the
0: manufacturing to services point. Yeah,
1: and, yeah. That, and that's partly because there's a bit of a mythology about um, how, how levels of productivity in manufacturing and certainly growth in productivity is somewhat higher in manufacturing than in services. That is that is just about true on average, but there's massive differences between different parts of the service sector, which is after all eighty percent of the economy. Uh, and there's, there's there's large parts of the service sector whose levels and growth of productivity is higher than that of manufacturing. So the short answer is that that compositional shift does not account does not account for the fall off um, that 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 we have uh, seen. I think the final question was uh, Larry's, which is, no, I'm sorry. Um, is that right? Yeah. Um, which is you know um, what is it to fear? Um, and I am. Simultaneously, a tech optimist and a tech pessimist, I would say. So, do I think uh, the sets of, thing, sets of things you mentioned, Larry, could become you know, um, the general purpose technologies of, of tomorrow, the equivalent of electrification and steam engines? Yes, I do. I think the potential is very great. I'm not in the tech pessimist Bob Gordon school of thought. Well, I think we're lo- running out of things to innovate on. Um,
0: the thrust of the question was whether we're just not seeing that at the moment and, 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 well, and actually this we, yeah. can rescue us from a, um, well, I think we are seeing to be. Well, I think we
1: are seeing it in certain places, in certain sectors, in certain firms. Mm. And I think there will mm. be some spread. Mm. Um, but my concern is that the, the spread might be, you know, we tend to think that in a world where you know, people are crossing borders, uh, money's crossing borders, goods are crossing borders, Information across, is crossing borders at a rate never previously seen in human history, that somehow that will speed up the rate at which ideas and innovation transfers across borders and across com, com, uh, countries. That has not happened. That has not happened. Uh, if anything, we've seen a decoupling in the productivity fortunes of frontier countries mm. and those just within the frontier. And what is true of countries is also true of companies. Mm. So we cannot take it as read that you know, more flows of all the factors of production, including, importantly, information, will by itself lead to more rapid diffusion. The evidence internationally and domestic, especially domestically mm-hmm. is that the opposite uh, mm. can happen. Indeed, the opposite has happened. That's why I think we need to take seriously, you know, rather than relying... On technological trickle-down, we need to find an infrastructure that supports that technological trickle-down, because I don't think it will happen purely by market competitive forces. That's been the experience of the last 30 years, and I think it could be true to an even greater extent over the next 30 years.
0: Thank you very much. Any of these questions, which were terrific questions, we could have gone on about, and I'm sorry it it looks as if there's uh, there's, there's still more. We're going to have to stop there. Um, Thank you very much indeed for your questions. Uh, I've been a terrific audience, and Andy Holdane, thank you very much for joining us.